Okay, so I'm sat here. It's a kind of overcast afternoon where I am. Is it pretty overcast where you are? It's crystal clear blue skies, actually. Oh, I'm jealous. I am on the south coast. Yeah. Oh. By a beach, and we've had the most, well, obviously the weirdest, everybody's had the weirdest spring and summer of their lives. Yeah. But the weather has been just, well, I'm sure it'll beat all records of sunshine where we, where we are anyway. Amazing, amazing. And I'm sat chatting to, over Zoom, as ever, to Wayne Hemingway, who is a massive hero, a men, yeah, hero, actually, of mine. Wayne, tell me about yourself. Tell me about yourself. That's a question, isn't it? Well, I'm uh, 59 years old. What's the most important things to say is that i um, married with uh, four kids, all grown up. You still call them your kids, don't you? Even though three of them are in their 30s. Three grandkids. And a business that uh, still excites us all after being a designer for nigh on 40 years, but still excited by the challenges and societal challenges. And, you know, we look at things. My mum always said to me that, you know, you're supposed to leave this place a better place than you found it. It was something that was passed down from a pop to my mum to me. And I think we've taken that through all the businesses that we've done. And, um, you know, we have a thing at Hemingway Design that, Design is about improving things that matter in life. I think it's taken a long time and it's still not there that the world understands that designers can actually do that rather than just um, change the colour for them or, or the pattern on the wall, you know, which some people still think design is about that. Make it look pretty, Wayne. That's what they tell you. <laughs> I've worked in sustainable design for the last 20 years and before that, just sustainability. And I'd stand by, design is the single most effective environmental tool there is. Nothing comes close. You change behavior you change product you change cradle you change grade you can change anything by the way that we design things have you always been focused on that has that, has that always been a thing for you well you know from when i grew up the idea that you could ever be a designer you know certainly wasn't there in the background of where i'm from i would never a family would have wouldn't have known that that was a profession you know the, the dream like for a lot of working class families was that you know your son or your daughter would get a, a job somewhere like Marks and Spencer's and then work their way up, you know, or go and work in a bank. That was the real desire, really, from, you know, nans and pops and, and mums. My father left when I was three. And so, no, it was definitely not something that, that I ever understood that I could be. And it certainly wasn't even through school and through university either. But from the age of 13, I was given an, an awful lot of freedom you know, it's kind of scary looking back now, but it, it felt normal that I was, you know, going to all night clubs, Wigan Casino, Blackpool Mecca. So, you know, literally staying out all night from the age of 13, dancing, buying records. And then, you know, by the age of 15, punk came along and, you know, I was a punk and all of those things happened. And all of that, I didn't know that that was design training. The fact of, you know, seeing David Bowie in 1972, the first concert I went to on my own was to see David Bowie with some older friends. So I'd have been just coming up to 12 years old. And I didn't realise then that that, and then going out to buy the record and then buying the clothes that, that went with it and getting your hair cut done in a certain way was all design training. And I didn't also realise that the idea that sewing machines were always running in our house. You know, my nan was always making clothes. My mum was always making clothes. My granddad made all my toys, made all the furniture in our house. I didn't realise that that was design training. So I suppose it was always around me but I was the first one in a family to monetize it and to, to turn it into an actual profession. But it's what the Hemingways have always done, and that's make things from scratch 
you know, without copying things, just getting on and sitting behind a sewing machine or sitting behind, you know, a lathe or something and getting on and making something. That's amazing because I mean, it's not just design training. There's also a commerce training there. There's also something about insight and observation and understanding what's going to come, what feels like it's going to come next. And I'm a little bit younger than you. I'm 52 in about two weeks' time, but four kids, now a granddad as well. And um, I grew up in Coventry. I know you were up in the northwest, weren't you? So I was born in Morecambe, but spent most, well, moved to Blackburn at seven, yeah. Okay, so um, I'll talk to you about Northern Seoul in a minute, actually, but I grew up in Coventry, and, and very similar, most of my family, my grandparents, my nan was one of, I think, officially 11, but we found out there's another 12 that we didn't know about from a previous relationship, so she's one of like 23, but of the 11, one of them invented Jet 1, Jet 2, the first jet-powered cars, one invented the Land Rover Defender, um, as we called it then, just the Series 3, the double-skin safari roof that sits on top of the landy. Another one invented, don't judge me, the Allegro suspension system. And another one invented the seed drill for Massey Ferguson. Everybody had a lathe, Wayne. Every, whenever you went around on a Sunday or a Saturday, they were all in their workshops. All the men were in their workshops doing the lathe. And all the women, they were all making clothes. They were, and it was a kind of, they needed to. That's how we, we yeah. got by. And you don't realise that. But look, tell me about growing up in the Northwest. What was it like up there during the 70s? How did it feel? What did it sound like? What did it smell like? And what did it taste like? Well, the, you know, the first thing is, um, is Morecambe. Well, I was there till 1968, but then went back all through my school holidays. And growing up in a seaside town, formative years, you know, the young years in a seaside town that was absolutely thriving. You know, all I remember is it feeling like there was a carnival or a, a party happening you know, for, I don't know, five months of the year when the Scots came down, when it was Glasgow fortnight, as it was called. And back then, whole towns used to shut down for two weeks and they'd all, literally everybody would go to their seaside resort of choice. And it just felt like the most exciting, glamorous place to grow up where people were dressing up, parading along the prom. There was the Miss World competitions at the super swimming pool there. And the glamorous, you know, Midland Hotel. And it felt like I was just living in the most glamorous of places with so much to do, you know, sandy beaches, proms, places to fish, places to walk the dog. It just, it just was, all I remember is total happiness and just the happiest place to grow up. And then when I moved to Blackburn, when I was seven or nearly eight, again, just finding that, that was moving to what I thought was, well, it felt like a big city and a very different place to Morecambe but it had a football team it had Blackburn Rovers who I quickly you know became obsessed with and you know very young walking to the match with all my school friends and then at the time Blackburn was without doubt a, a hotbed of music you know the King George's Hall number one was one of the major venues where everybody would play you know Davy Bowers like I mentioned on his Aladdin Sane tour whether it was Slade whether it was T-Rex whoever you know then on to the punk days. But it also had amazing soul clubs. So it had the Golden Palms in Blackburn, which you know was a, a proper big soul event place, which let young people in on certain nights. I think it was a Sunday night. It had in the town next to us, Angels in Burnley, where I met my wife when we were young. I had Richard Serling, one of the, the best Northern Soul DJs ever on a Wednesday night. That's when me and my wife met. And Ian Levine had his regular weekend slot there at Angels. And then it had this place called the Lodestar where the Sex Pistols played their first gig 
our second gig outside of London. There was eight of us there. Boomtown Raps played their first ever gig outside of Ireland at the Lodestar. So we had all of that. Plus we were linked. We had a free bus system that would take people to Blackpool Mecca, probably the greatest uh, jazz funk stroke soul club in the north of England ever. And then we'd all go onto there on a free bus to Wigan Casino. So Blackburn was right at the centre of, you know, the epicentre of cool. And, and obviously that continued for a long time because, you know, the infamous Blackburn raves of the late 80s and the early 90s were nationally significant. And it's also Blackburn has produced from that era so many people who've gone on into the creative industries. You know, Christine Corto, who heads up the Manchester International Festival, and you know, I could go on and on and on of what Blackburn created. So I was, it was partly growing up at the right time in the right place. It's a very different town now. It's changed in many ways. But it still has that, I don't know, it's got something about it, that town. And I, and I was lucky enough to come from it. You know, I, I could have come from all the towns around it, whether it was Preston, you know, whether it was Burnley or, or whatever. But Blackburn was a place that people went to, to actually party and to see bands. And so that helped. That's amazing. And I mean, you're right. I mean, if you'd been in Wigan, it would have been still cool and great, but it would have been very different. And if you'd been in Manchester, it would have been different again. Timing matters so much. Has timing made a, a big impact? Has timing changed your career? Yeah, and some of it, you make your own look, and sometimes you're lucky. And I suppose the biggest timing was to move to London in 1979. And again, you know, you think of London now as this thriving metropolis. You know, well, obviously, COVID has changed that a little bit at the moment, but this thriving metropolis of nine million people with money awash with money from all around the world and awash with visitors, you know, that's the norm. With house prices beyond the reach of any average person, you know, and the only way of ever getting on a housing ladder is to have, you know, the bank of mum and dad. Well, when I went down there in 1979, London had lost two and a half million of its population. It had gone down from nine million at its peak 20 years before that. It had slowly, slowly, but it had accelerated in the 70s, you know, through the winter of discontent. So I went down the year after the winter of discontent, you know, with, you know, what we know what happened then with all the rubbish on the streets, the change of government from a Labour government to Thatcher coming in for the first time. London was decimated, which meant if you had an ounce of gumption about you, you had a chance to get on and do things. And that gumption, you know, it was a time of forming bands. I formed a band. We emptied our wardrobe onto Camden Market. It was six pounds a day. Me and Jerry didn't remember that. And we ended up taking 300 quid on that first weekend. You know, I'm, I'm condensing a story very quickly here. We were able to rent shops. Neil Street on Covent Garden, you know, one of the retail streets of London now. Yeah. 60 quid a week for a big shop. No, no deposit needed. There were empty shop units everywhere. We bought a house, a three-bedroomed Victorian terrace in northwest London for £21,000. We got a 90% grant from the GLA, from the Greater London Authority, to refurbish it with new electrics. They paid 90% to put on a new roof, new electrics, new plumbing, new floorboards, new damp course, because they wanted people to repopulate Victorian streets. Can you believe it? I genuinely can't. That's amazing. And it was the same story for all of our friends, all of our nightclubbing friends. You know, we could take risks. We could try things because, you know, the pension funds didn't own the streets. Yeah. The housing hadn't been bought up and it was just... But then in the space of you know, my life in London... How many years are we now? In the space of 40 years. It's 40 years ago now, 41 years ago. London is back you know, to 9 million again. And all of that opportunity, 
is not there. No. So timing was everything. If we'd moved down to London 10 years later, you know, if I'd been born 10 years later or decided as a 28-year-old to move to London, it would have been very, very different indeed. And, and maybe you wouldn't have been so brave either, because I guess with being young comes this, not always, comes this kind of less fear of the reckless, less timidity. Do you yeah. think that's part of it? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're 18, 19, you're in a band, you try going on a market and it works. And then you try and, between us, design some shoes and design some clothes and they sell. And then next thing you know, you know, within years, we had 300 odd staff and 25 million turnover and 23 mm. shops all around the world from Tokyo and all around the world via Toronto back to London and, and obviously throughout the UK. And all of it with a group of people of which none of us were trained in any way, without any accountants involved, without any bank managers involved, just through it feeling like you could have a go because the landscape was right to do it. Yeah. And there were loads of others doing it. You know, it wasn't just in the fashion industry alone. You know, you had Paul Smith starting out, you had Vivian Westwood, none of them with any training. You know, you had Tom Dixon starting and furniture and interiors. And we all went to the same clubs. You know, Tom was in a band. You just did things because it was possible. And I count myself very, very fortunate to be young in London at that time. Yeah. So it's an interesting time. So it was post-punk, well, end of punk, post-punk. It was just as New Romantic started. Was, yeah, pre-New Romantic. So when I came down, it was the Manchester bands. It was a Joy Division, a certain ratio. Yeah. And, you know, Echo and the Bunnymen from Liverpool and, and all of that. They were all massive in London. And Two-Tone, obviously. It was, yeah. you know, there was the specials and all your Coventry yeah. bands you know, and Dexter's and all that lot were big. Then all of a sudden there was following that, the mod revival, which brought things back a bit more to London. And then it was the hard times look of the club like the Beatroot. I do mixes and put them up. I've got a massive record collection of like 14, 15,000 pieces of vinyl. And I just started doing mixes and, and done a, a Beatroot, which is my favourite nightclub of all time, a favourite London nightclub of all time, which was a really eclectic club tiny little club and I've just done a beetroot mix and it's had the biggest listenership all around the world of, of anything so I think it shows they got the music policy just right there but anyway yeah so it was you know the mod revival you know all that purple hearts type yeah Milton Parkers all that post the jam bands were all big and, th and then new romantic and electronic music hit big time and were you still listening to soul at this point again this is something that a lot of people didn't realize but a lot of these soul boys became punks punks on a night that you went to the punk clubs or you went to see whoever the damned or whatever but then you'd still go and listen to your jazz funk and go to your soul clubs and wear not that different clothing because you know a lot of punk wasn't all torn leather jackets and big mohicans that's the kind of put it on a london postcard type of caricature of punk a lot of punk was you know pvc t-shirts that had been artfully put together with safety and studio 54 was exactly the same it's a really rich era, that kind of democratisation of music production. In the UK was punk, and in the USA you got the begins of the Sugar Hill Gang, so you got like rap, and then Studio 54 took off. Yeah, but, yeah, but think about Blondie, and think about Rapture. You've got somebody who came out of CBGBs doing a dance record. It's exactly the same crowd. Yeah. It, it was the same crowd who, it was, a, it was a great documentary, I think it was on BBC Four, I don't know, must be nearly a decade ago now. When punk met funk or when, when punk met disco or something. And it was so good with Debbie Harry talking about it. And, she, and they all talked about it exactly as I remember it. You know, the reason why the Talking Heads were such an amazing band is because they got that punk aesthetic 
and disco and funk, yeah. you know, and when you listen to their albums like Remain in Light and all of that lot, they've got that aesthetic of the two coming together. And the same thing was happening in the UK with a certain ratio. Joy Division are a dance They are a dance band. They are. I agree. And New Order came, you know, obviously, yeah. they're a New Order, Blue Monday, which came straight out of Joy Division. You know, it's dance music. I've just bought, I'm looking for the vinyl. I'd never had the original 12-inch. I always had it on cassette. So I've just re-bought it, and it's, you, you've got it, I'm assuming, that beautiful sleeve with the die cut. It's one of the most amazing records to hold. Yeah, Not yeah. because it, it was, I mean, I was, that was 81, wasn't it? So I would have been 13, I was born in 68. And I remember how, I knew it was monstrously powerful musically, but I hadn't appreciated its design aesthetic. And I know they lost 10p per copy, allegedly. Yeah. And a certain ratio, they're still producing amazing music. That's what I love about ACR. So yeah. I can see this, this world of opportunity and this fizzing of potential within you and Geraldine. How did your relationship work in terms of, did one of you more naturally lead one part of the business and another one lead the other? Yeah, I think I've always naturally been more of a, a mouth. So I, I was a kind of more of the face of it because Geraldine has never been comfortable and not really interested in, in the media side of things. Geraldine has always been a lot more detailed in terms of design, making things work. You know, she's way more technical than me. I was always the one who was saying, come on, let's do this and let's do that. But Geraldine's always been the one who's kind of made sure that it was doable and possible. And so it was naturally split that way. And so Geraldine would kind of more nuts and bolts design and me more conceptual, which worked very well. I would naturally go down and work with the marketing and the PR teams and things. And Geraldine would naturally work with the HR and the commercial and the economic side of the business. And so she was always much more nuts and bolts and technical. And I was much more the other way. And that has always worked very, very well. And the kids work in the business as well. Yeah. So two of them are partners, you know, so now as we've got older, we've reduced and they're up there now as equal partners ish with us, two of them anyway, so far. I've got three of my kids and my son-in-law all work for our business. And it's lovely. I really like that kind of family feel. Tell me, when you first saw Geraldine, what was the first thing you thought when you saw her? Well, I could see that she was very different. You know, she clearly made her own clothes and she was dressed really interestingly. She could dance. I saw her from a distance on the dance floor and she was dancing to what was exciting. It was the same records that were exciting me. So, you know, most things that you want when you're a teenager were there. She's good looking, can dance. Great taste in music. And great taste in fashion. So, you know, that's quite weird that because obviously you don't settle with somebody for 40 years for those reasons, but something has to make that first introduction and that spark. And obviously you love them for their heart after that and their brains and everything else. That's how you love somebody. People say, oh, that's facile. And, but you have to be attracted to somebody. I didn't know her from Adam. You know, I'd not been introduced to her. Nobody I knew knew her. We didn't move in any circles where we could have ever known each other. And there had to be one attraction, and it was fashion and music. Yeah. Why not? I get that. I saw my wife on the bus. We grew up in Leicestershire. I was looking down, and she was getting on the bus. And I just thought, I have no idea where she comes from, who she is, but I'm going to find out. It took me four years, Wayne, but I did eventually yeah. find out. And similar, all that stuff, all that stuff is shared. So look, Wayne, I don't want to take too much of your time, and I, would, I could genuinely talk to you for hours. Red or Dead was amazing. And I love what you did and the stuff you've done at Hemingway Design. You know, it's what I love about your work is there are no boundaries. You work in any sector in any way. 
and you gear it towards making a difference, making things better in some way. So look, tell me, what's the future? Or a couple of questions. What's the future for Hemingway Design? Uh, well, I suppose that the biggest thing that we're doing right now is called the Good Business Festival, which is it's an international business festival funded by central government, by taxpayer money, but part of the levelling up agenda. So it's taking place in Liverpool. It's the first world event that celebrates purposeful business and what it gives back to society, which is basically what every business now is moving towards. You can't have a business now and just talk about your bottom line. You know, it's got to be about your triple bottom line now. It's got to be about, you know, as well as making money that you're actually benefiting society and you know, doing all the things that business should have done long ago. But we we're still evolving as a society and thinking that money was everything in certain respects. Well, yeah. you know, and COVID has kind of accelerated that pace of change towards businesses thinking more about their impact on society rather than just their impact on their shareholders. And it's an enormous undertaking. We're doing it as a partnership with Culture Liverpool, you're part of Liverpool Council. And it's just going to be enormous. And it, and it kind of sums up what we do. You know, everything we do has got to have impact. If we do housing, it's got to be sustainable. It's got to be affordable. It's got to be in a location where it's going to benefit more than just the people who are, who are going to live there. If, if we're going to do a regeneration, we're going to do it so it impacts in areas that have got the lowest deprivation. It's our speciality. It reflects our background. It's what we're good at. And we also can afford to work on lower margins because we made money out of red or dead and because we never borrowed any money and we don't have any bank overdrafts and we own our own offices and things like that, that we can take on jobs that a lot of agencies wouldn't take on because they wouldn't be able to make any money out of it. Sure. So I spoke at the International Business Festival in Liverpool, which is, it's not the same thing, clearly, but one grew and changed from the other. And it's a great place to have an event. Super exciting. And that whole idea of a regenerative business, a business that doesn't just, you know, when we developed the whole notion of the legal rights of a business, the sole responsibility was for shareholder return and then legal compliance, because that's all we could measure. Now we can measure so, so much more and shifting from CSR, which is a waste of time, to CSV, creating shared value. That's beautiful. To see something celebrate that is amazing. And I, I use sustainability rather than a break on innovation. I use it as the driver. It's the core thing. But um, I do it with companies that people don't really think are that sustainable. But that's part of the joy of it all, to be honest with you. And just to finish off, my last question, because I've taken up a lot of your time. When were you most happy, Wayne? When was your happiest window? I think the happiest times and the ones that I remember the most are when, when all of us were together on a trip where we were, might be driving around Australia or one trip was, I remember, driving through Mexico, Guatemala and onto one other Central American country, which I can't remember. And, and just those times of kids being young, doing adventurous things, music blasting out of a, of a hired van that we hired in that country and just exploring and being together as a family. And um, yeah, I think they're the things that I remember the most about life, but also the kids being at work. They've had an unconventional childhood and, you know, in, in that to do all we've done, we couldn't have done everything and been home at five o'clock every night, you know, looking after the kids. It, it wouldn't have worked. So they came straight from school every night to the studios to the warehouses and did their stuff with all our staff. We knew they'd be safe. They'd be on sewing machines. They'd be packing boxes. They'd be doing all of that. And, you know, we, a lot of times we travel to shows abroad to either show our products or else buy 
materials and stuff they came with us and um yeah i think it's just that shared experience i get that completely it's lovely do they share your musical tastes yeah they do yeah they, they've um they all have got vinyl records and obviously they take it in different directions but they all like music yeah what are you listening to now well right now i'm doing these mixed clouds many many years ago i bought a jazz and funk collection which i've never listened to everything most records I've bought because I like the record, but this was a collection that I bought from somebody who needed to get rid of it. And um, it must be about 10 years, more than that, 12 years ago since I bought it. And there's one here, Caldera. Um, Look at that. I didn't, I didn't know, you know, that, that's them look some, what's, what year is it? 1977. And I've just played the first side of it and it's absolutely blooming ace. It starts off with a really good jazz funk number that I've heard before, but then it goes on to two tracks I've never heard before, which are like, good danceable balearic type music so these will be going into my next couple of mixed clouds coming up so i listen to those on mixcloud yeah so if you go to mixcloud and type in wayne hemingway or, or type in beatroot b-e-a-t-r-o-u-t and then they'll all come up i'll post a link to it on the um on the thing do you know the um artist rob ryan at all have you come across rob ryan it rings the bell but i can't picture anything so he does these really ornate paper cuts, really beautiful, ornate stuff. But he's also a Northern Soul DJ and similar age. In fact, probably I think identical age to you and has a similar thing on Mixcloud, these vinyl only playlists. Yeah, yeah mine are vinyl only, yeah. I'll send you a link. I think okay. you'd actually get on as people really, really well. Look, Wayne, I genuinely can't thank you enough for your time. I know I'm stealing stuff from you and I really, really appreciate it. And I will, I'm listening to the Chai Lights at the moment. I'd forgotten oh, all about the Chai Lights. I hadn't realised that. to be forgotten. That was yeah, the that, is that the one that Beyonce took the sample? No, no that's, um, that'll come to me in a minute. Yeah, yeah. So that's the famous one that, that Beyonce took. Yeah. Just love it. I've not listened to Beyonce's new album yet, actually. I must do that. But I'm kind of stuck in that era. And I grew up new romantic indies, you know, Stone Roses, Blur. Yeah. That was my things so yeah. changing into more soul has been brilliant i've loved it yeah. i've really loved it well look, i might see you at the festival if you need anything i'm around email me and i'll send you where we are latest with it i'll send you all the documents and stuff and then if anything tickles your fancy then let us know well i'd love to do it you know I, i'm a compare i'm a host i'm a speaker all around sustainability i wrote, I wrote that piece for the journal oh you wrote the piece for the journal yeah, yeah well so email me now and i'll send you where we're up to because they probably haven't sent you all the latest stuff on it Amazing. Have an amazing afternoon, whatever you're doing. All right, then. Thank you, See my you friend. Yeah. See you. Bye-bye.